0: This is Aspire, Arch Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship.
1: Today is March 13, 2012. I'd like to welcome Jill Violet, CEO and founder of Playworks. Playworks is a national nonprofit organization that supports learning by providing safe, healthy, and inclusive play and physical activity. To do this, Playworks partners with low-income schools at recess and throughout the entire school day. Playworks currently operates in more than 300 schools in 23 U.S. cities and serves more than 130,000 elementary school students every day. Do I have that right?
2: That is correct.
1: Great. And, Jill, you, we know, are an extremely accomplished person, a championship athlete in high school, in track, a student body president while at Harvard. In addition to being the founder of Playworks, you're also the founder of the Museum of Children's Art in Oakland. You are an Ashoka Fellow, something we share, a fellowship that recognizes and supports the most highly impactful social entrepreneurs around the world. Um, And today, you and Playworks are also part of the Clinton Global Initiative. And am I right that in 2011, you were recognized by Forbes as one of the nation's most impactful social entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's true. Terrific. So there's so much we could talk about today, but I'd really like to focus our conversation on the subject of empathy and particularly your role as a key leader in Ashoka's empathy initiative. To set the stage for that conversation, I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about something I know that you've been thinking about for a long time, which is the role of play in the development of healthy children.
2: Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's one of those funny things when you talk about play. Um, it, it eludes def- definition in some ways, but um, one of my favorite uh, the definitions of a, of a game is by this philosopher Bernard Suits and he said that a game is the voluntary attempt to overcome an unnecessary challenge and um, I just love the mix of um, sort of seemingly conflicting ideas that sort of con- encapsulated in that definition and I um, for me, that's at the heart of what we're seeing when we're going into schools and leveraging play to promote both learning and physical activity. That it is at its heart a challenge, right? Um, right. But that kids are reacting to our program and engage with our program the way they are because it is uh, unique in the school day and creating a real chance for the kids to choose and be in control and um, the way the feedback works when you're playing is in a sort of almost constant iterative way. Um, just, it's constant feedback which enables them to um, come closer in mastery even though, you know, it's sort of at the core of the idea is that there is no end point, that there is no... It's an unnecessary, you know, it's an unnecessary challenge. You're just doing it for the point of doing it. And all those things about play, I think, are ultimately why it's at the heart of taking a second look at education reform and um, and really trying to ultimately build schools that really look at kids from, a, from an empathic perspective, that recognizing that kids out in America's schools today are more like you and me than they're not.
1: I think what, having heard you talk about this before, one of the things that did strike me in terms of empathy is how your approach does require an empathic understanding of children, sort of looking at the institution from the from their perspective and asking, how would I want to experience my learning process if it was up to me?
2: Yeah, it's very much, and, and not only as grown-ups looking from their perspective, but also just Consciously creating opportunities for kids to see and, and be seen by others. You know, I just think it's so easy as grown ups who, try- who are trying to build schools which narrow achievement gaps and have all these other laudable goals to, re- to really see clearly that the ways society has changed have, have a- reduced, if not wholly eliminated, these other sort of more essential and formal learning objectives, like teaching empathy and teamwork and leadership, and um, so when we're out at schools, one of the things we're really trying to do is to have create opportunities for all the people in the schools, whether they're teachers and students or students with each other or parents and families coming into schools with teachers and staff, just to break down all the things that sort of. Um, Almost a, a systemically built in to keep us separate and on different teams and to help us see one another and, and to recognize the common goals.
1: You know, one of the things I've heard you talk about along those lines, which I think is so interesting, is the culture that exists in our schools today. And I've heard you talk about this in terms of sort of like a culture of control, that we set up institutions that are really designed to sort of say, how do we control these, these beings that are within our, our <laughs> institution? And you've, I think, spoken compellingly about how that culture can uh, evolve into a really different space in which um, there's more autonomy, there's more play. And I wonder if you could talk about that. How, uh, Really two questions. One is, how would you like to see that culture culture evolve? And how does PlayWorks help that culture evolve in the right direction in schools?
2: Yeah, I I think it's such a fascinating question, right? And I also, I think critical to answering that question, you have to start um, from a place of really recognizing what we're asking of educators today, right? So we're holding them accountable to these very narrow standards. And it's a pretty high-stakes game for them as well. It's not just the testing that's high-stakes, but all of how education is being talked about and discussed and all the the references to the system being broken, I I approach it with a lot of trepidation. Like I, I worry that whenever people start to refer to systems as being broken it's just a sort of overture to wanting to dismantle that system. So I, I come at it with a, a high degree of, of concern, but also, um, so I, I just I go into the conversation wanting us first to have a lot of understanding for why teachers and administrators make the decisions they do. But the, what what it's boiled down to though is because kids aren't getting the chance to play outside of school hours the way I did when I was growing up. It means they come to school without the basic skills that we brought to the, the schoolyard. They don't know how to pick teams or to even out teams if games go awry. They don't know how to resolve conflicts. They, like rock, paper, scissors is something that we're out there in the schools teaching kids how to do so that they have this really arbitrary, quick, face-saving way to um, keep games going. But uh, These basic skills they're not bringing in. So if you're a classroom teacher, right, and you're being on one hand held accountable to these very intense standards. And on the other hand, dealing with kids who aren't bringing to school the same kind of social skills that we brought to school, you're, you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. So, so given that, Playworks comes in and basically we recognize that there's a high degree of chaos in the current school culture and, and we, bring in, we reintroduce a culture of play, which for some people is sort of counterintuitive, but we do it in a way that enables us to sort of stop the chaos and shift behaviors. And that in combination enables teachers to do what they do best and teach and enables kids to learn. And that combination of all those moving parts is really how we feel like we really contribute to accelerating learning by, by really focusing on the school culture.
1: You know, one of the things I've heard you talk about also that is so interesting is the cognitive shift that takes place when you move into a mode of play i heard you describe it in a video i think it was a ted talk Uh, very interesting this idea that when we're just sort of passively listening to a teacher make a presentation or even the way i've observed my my own children sometimes studying which seems rather passive and um, almost oppressive,
2: <laughs>
1: and, and yet there is this, when it becomes a game, there's a cognitive shift in which really some very different things can happen. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, no, I often like to, when I'm doing public speaking, I like to start with a game and have people, before they've even heard me do my shtick, experience move into that brain space, because it is really, it really feels different, right? And the research, uh, Stuart Brown, who wrote the book Play, has done a lot of stuff, and uh, there's, there's different great brain research on it. They've done MRIs on on people while they were playing, or they have found um, really interesting on, on uh, jazz musicians while they're improvising. A- and there is, we we know that the MRI shows that when you're engaged in these kind of activities, you're using a different part of the brain, and you're using a part of a brain that when it's engaged is really conducive to learning. Uh, but even just, uh, you play a quick game, we play a game called stand-up sometimes with uh grown up, and with kids, and, and you're it's making a series of statements, and if that statement applies to you, you stand up, and it just changes the whole dynamic of, of the learning experience, right, as opposed to sort of this didactic one human standing in front and dropping knowledge on all the others. Um, you suddenly, uh, when you're playing this game, even as a member of the audience, you're you're listening a different way because what I'm saying might be directly applied to you. And then when you're standing up and claiming this thing, uh, your, your pulse clickens a little and you, you notice who else is standing up around you and you're engaging with those other people in the audience. And it stops being about me, the teacher, and starts being about all of us. And fundamentally, that really is, you know, much more how the world works. And it, those kind of infusing those kinds of learning moments into the school day just from a you know purely commonsensical standpoint, makes a lot of sense because it's preparing people for what life outside of you know the, the academia is like. But but from a from a practical standpoint, infusing in, in those kind of moments into the school day just as critical, just to get the brain firing and maximizing what's possible.
1: One of the things I hear in what you're saying is just the idea of fun, which I think for anybody that is a parent knows that when kids are having fun, a lot of great things can happen. And yet one of the cultures that we do see in school systems that persists, I think, today is the idea that school's got to be about work. It's got to be hard. In some ways, it should be painful. Uh And um, having gone through uh, 12 years of Catholic education, I can attest to (laughs) the painfulness of some of my experiences in schools. Certainly, I wouldn't describe a lot of what happened there as being fun. Um, How do you think that what do you think is happening in the culture right now around this idea that learning can be fun? Do you see that as being uh, an inflection point and is it something that's taking hold or is there still a lot of resistance to that concept?
2: Well, there are two things that come to mind. The first is I think it, it's it's a trap to think of play and work as being sort of antithetical. I think the opposite of play is depression. The opposite of play isn't work. That Work and play um in, in in a lot of great ways can be thoroughly intertwined and in fact, I would argue that some of the most creative best minds have been people who embodied uh, the sort of fusion of those two things. You think about Ella Fitzgerald singing scat or you know even you think about John Madden doing color commentary on a football game there, there is a there are, there are great masters at, at certain kinds of work when they infuse play that it that it is just better um, but that being said I do think you're right I think you know I think we uh, we have a funny culture and I think we have some puritanical values that um, that make us a little uneasy with fun I've often you know I've often felt like there was a even though you know the pursuit of happiness is written into our constitution i've thought that there's a certain that not everybody's totally buying in on that part you know right, I, right so and i you know and i worry sometimes honestly that um, when we think about constitutional rights that i'm not always convinced that people believe that low income people are as guaranteed to that constitutional pursuit of happiness as they are to the other rights and i i think it's a failing of our sort of I do know, our, our collective will to do the right thing and, and a real, you know, I don't know, honest buy in to the social contract.
1: Can you give us a sense of two or three really practical things that Playworks does? Like, how does it work? What actually sure. do you do in a school that causes this transformation or allows for some new possibilities to occur?
2: So, when we show up in a school, and that's whether we're doing our full time direct service model or we also are now building our training business and the, our direct service model serves predominantly low-income schools and urban communities, but our training and technical assistance business, we're working all over the country in uh, more rural communities, uh, more affluent communities, really serving everybody, and that's been great. Um, so but when we go into a school in, in, either, um, in either way, we uh, first, one of the things we're doing is working with the school staff to really map the yard, to take a good look at what's going on currently and to come up with, for, with a vision for what they want. And like anything, you know, half the battle is having a plan. So they, we map the yard for what, what we want to see. And then um, the next thing we often do is we'll teach all the kids rock, paper, scissors. Uh, or some, in some parts of the country they call it Rochambeau. But, you know, it's the, it's the game where they agree to throw out either a rock, which is a fist, or scissors, which is like a peace sign on its hands, or the flat, full-out, palm, hand-open uh, piece of paper. And we get everyone to buy in to having that be the arbitrary problem solver. And I know it sounds so ridiculous, but it's, it's you know, most conflicts, right, that are happening out there, are completely arbitrary, and giving kids this basic tool and, and an opportunity to not lose face, but to keep playing, honestly, it makes all the difference in the world. And then the third thing I'd throw can I, can out I just, there: is, Can
1: I just yeah. say I would love to see, like, the U.S. Congress try that for a few months? Yeah,
2: <laughs> you, you're not the first person who suggested that perhaps I, after I finish, you know, working with kids, <laughs> that I could take on the political uh, gridlock as a uh, yes. Um,
1: Tell, I, I, you, tell us number three. Yeah, you were. So th-
2: and number three, I was going to say is, um, I, I just really think that play and recess and the schoolyard represents a huge opportunity to put kids in charge and to um, and to really give them the chance to lead and to take responsibility for one another and themselves in a way that our experience shows changes how they feel about school, how they feel about themselves, how they feel about each other. Um, it just really enables them to see things more clearly, I think, and and with a, a generous heart. And it really and play. You know, there's there are all these great quotes, the, the Plato quote about you learn more about a person than an hour of playing with them, than and a year of of talking with them, a year of discourse. I think is what Plato wrote. But right. I, I, and 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 with kids, you see the same thing. You give them the chance to play together, and it builds these opportunities for trust and. Uh, I just connection
1: and and you know empathy. I think that you're onto something so critical here obviously in in the sense that we have an education system that doesn't really think deeply enough about how to do emotional intelligence, social and psychological development that is so critical to success and happiness. Those things sometimes happen by accident or without the kind of intentional thought that goes into, say, thinking about how students develop math skills or writing skills. Uh, Drilling into the concept of empathy for a minute and really thinking about that, what have we learned about how empathy is developed through play? And Can you speak to that and can you give us some practical ideas about how kids develop empathy through their play experiences.
2: Yeah. But uh, before I answer that, I just yeah. want to go back because when you were talking about how your know, education hasn't really right. um, bought in maybe to the extent around social, emotional intelligence and learning, um, I also feel like as practitioners um, we have some culpability. Like I, I think on some level we, we've we been willing to sort of uh, – on these sort of softer skills we've been willing to sort of argue intuitively as opposed to bringing hard data to the party. And I feel like, um, so we've just finished the first year of a two-year randomized control trial, and we have some really great statistically significant data that shows that Playworks uh, schools in in comparison with the non-Playworks schools that we we got to work with. Um, that we are able to reduce and prevent bullying. That we are able to contribute to academic readiness. That we are able to recover um, instructional time. And and so, I mean, I, I just we have a role, and I think we have a responsibility. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to. Um, there are just certain things that we. There's certain aspects of the game that we need to play better. So I, I don't. I just—I never want to. I just don't think any one group should be vilified for the sure. reason we've gotten this. I feel like we're all in it together, which is you know key to the understanding of empathy. So, um, and in terms of you know what we know about teaching kids the skills around empathy, um, I've learned a lot from Mary Gordon and and their work with Roots of Empathy. Um, you know, we—I know a lot about. Uh, you know, giving opportunities for kids to um, spend time together, to express their feelings, to um, do it in a safe uh, environment is really cr- critical. So the role of the caring, consistent, well-trained grown-up, um, and their um, and their ability to both be present but not to um, overly dictate the activities um, that that's critical. Um, so, you know, what we know is that it. By, by and large, learning empathy is an experiential process. Um, one of the great sort of uh, early educational philosophers, well, 100 years ago, but John Dewey wrote all about how empathy was taught through the process of informal education. Um, mm. So it, that out-of-class time, um, the multi-age learning seems to really be a significant predictor of the effectiveness of, of conveying sort of a number of the sort of social emotional learnings but empathy among them um, so I think making a conscious effort creating a multi-age environment, um, having other activities going on um, where so that empathy the, the teaching of empathy isn't necessarily it often it feels like a byproduct even if it is your your goal um, right. It seems to work best when kids aren't being beaten over the head with an explicit and now you will learn empathy kind of approach but, right um, yeah.
1: So it's something that can emerge from playing effectively, naturally, because children learn about and imagine how each other are feeling and develop more interpersonal understanding and respect just from being in that intensive interpersonal environment. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Ingle Bay interview with David Castro and Jill Violet, founder and CEO of Playworks.
1: This is something maybe a little off topic, but I just wanted to ask it because I, I I'm curious if you thought about this. But I have so I have four children. One of them is very into video games, which is a great source of disturbance to to my wife and I. Video games tend to be horrendous, you know, very violent, and all the games that kids want to play usually seem to involve shooting and killing, and it's really somewhat disturbing to to look at. You see these huge companies that are involved in this, promoting these games, Microsoft, Nintendo, you know, Sony, and although Nintendo, interestingly, I put in a different category, they seem to have a broader range of stuff going on, but One of the things that seems to be there is just a massive unexplored area of the use of video games to teach these more adaptive, more positive skills. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, what do you see out there? Is there a dialogue about this, like that there's an undiscovered country that could really be brought into play that could positively impact kids? Is there any dialogue going on in this about this? And where do you see that, that whole trajectory?
2: Oh, yeah, no, it's huge. I mean, the, the game, the, so I, I am that rare um, bird. I, I'm not um, just sort of uh, dogmatically anti-video games. I, I you know, I, Gaming is a form of play, right. and I think there's a place for it. And I, I will argue to the end that, by and large, kids getting the chance to be outside unsupervised um, playing in that in the physical world will often choose that over video games and that in some ways the sort of prevalence of video games is symptomatic of the dwindling opportunities for play and the, the demise of the culture of play in other ways um, right so I, you know I, I think uh, there are great video games out there that are super engaging there's a really um, actually really politicized um pretty vibrant game for Ch- Games for change movement. Um, I've been really inspired and impressed and um, I-, I feel like some of the really interesting game theory thinking and thinking around play and its role is Jane McGonagall and the other sort of people who are writing about it, they're they're really at the forefront. They're really doing some amazing, great work. And I I, I think you know, I I am I have five kids, and I'm um in between the ages of seven and sixteen, and they will tell you that I am something of a luddite when it comes to like my willingness to let them be online and to do everything that they say their peers allow. I mean, I think
1: meaning that you parent, don't meaning that you you guard them from too much of that, or yeah,
2: I mean, I just like I think my job as a parent is to set boundaries, like, and I set unpopular boundaries with my kids sometimes, mm-hmm. and. I make them, and like, you know, I'm also the mom who says, you've been doing homework too long, go outside and play, you know? So, right. I, you know, I'm, I'm an equal opportunity, bizarre parent, but like, you know, I love my kids, and I, you just, each person has to, as a parent, do what feels right to you, and that's, it's an incredibly, it's way harder being a parent, I think, than it is running a big national nonprofit. So I have nothing but empathy for parents and families all across the country dealing with this issue. I, I guess, um, I, I just, I, you know, I, I think video games potentially have huge potential for um, bringing us closer and actually creating opportunities for playing together, um, but I think then, you know, as grown-ups, we also have to exercise our responsibility around making sure that there are opportunities for kids to be outside and playing, not just virtually, but connected too. And I think it's a challenge. The it, new technology and how it affects the society is new and there's still a lot to be discovered, but it's still potentially a great resource for building connectivity. And, and it's really, it's on us to make sure that we don't allow it to, to really reduce itself or to, to its least common denominator because of sort of capitalist instincts and other kind of lesser human virtues i just think i think the potential for promoting play through online connectivity is huge and it'll be a real loss if we don't make the most of it and figure as play advocates how to work together
1: yeah i mean it would seem that that the, the it's virtually unbounded just a a, sh- a small story on my end I have a little girl, eight years old, and she learned tremendous amount of math playing a brilliant online game called Dreambox, which is, uh, you know, presents children with a variety of game type environments in which they can learn basic math concepts. So I do. But I was just shocked that I couldn't find anything it it shocked me that there weren't lots and lots of titles like that available. Uh, Mm -hmm. It seemed to be a very diminished universe where there could be just so many more opportunities. So I'm really encouraged to hear you say that you think people are out there, their innovators are out there thinking about this and we'll see more and better video games in the future. Taking this in a slightly different direction, the world of organized sports, you obviously had a terrific experience in organized sports uh, in your youth, and I know a lot of people do have good experiences in organized sports. However, there is sort of a dark side to organized sports as well. It's not essential that one learns empathy and becomes a better person, (laughs) you know, through the world of organized (laughs) sports. And I'm wondering if you have any reflections on what are the best practices for schools that are developing organized sports programs so that students do get relevant life experiences from their organized sporting what do we see out there going on what would you recommend what's the frontier of of really enlightened approaches to organized sports
2: well there's another Ashoka fellow Jim Thompson who's running positive coaching alliance and they are great and working nationally really promoting the idea of double goal coaching and um, I've been really impressed Um, as a mom and my kids soccer leagues they've uh, the BCA trainings have been part of both our coaches' experience as well as they have a, a, a great um, primer for parents and families on how to be an engaged fan, and um, I, I've been really impressed with their work. Um, and, and, you know, I think, you know, we run, at Playworks, we run both, um, you know, the recess programming and then we do some after-school uh, leagues where we introduce competition, and you know I feel like it, it's a funny world and like on both sides the you know dogma tends to be of the you know a certain kind of intense persuasion, but the folks who are non-competitive can be just as dogmatic as the folks who are uber competitive and we've plopped ourselves squarely in the middle, which can be a very very lonely place but uh <laughs> you know I, 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 we, America's a funny place you know we we have a funny relationship with our with our sports teams and our sports heroes and um, it's a little out of whack, I think, and I think it's trickled down to affect our kids, but there are people out there advocating on behalf of a, of a saner approach, and um, I think PCA is a great example.
1: Positive Coaching Alliance, yes, I, yep. he's on my list to talk to. Oh, great. Um, that's great, that is that is really great. You do a lot of work in low-income neighborhoods and I wanted to ask you specifically about that. I actually do a lot of work in low-income neighborhoods also and it's quite clear that the context in which those kids experience gaming and, and play is different than what we might see in more affluent areas. And particularly, we have children, I, I run a charter school in Reading, Pennsylvania. We have children who really come from families and communities where there's a tremendous amount of violence. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about best practices that you see for schools where the students are coming from that kind of an environment. Is there anything additional that you can do? Is there any effort to try to address that context in which the school is trying to operate?
2: Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, um, we we definitely, you know, so we're in the 300 schools we're serving. Yeah. On average, it's, you know, 90% of the kids are receiving free and reduced lunch. And so we are serving a disproportionately low-income population. And there's no doubting that, especially like mm. some of the communities we're working with, um, Detroit's been just really challenging. New Orleans has seen sort of violence in a lot of different ways. You know, and I think there's a certain, I think, Poverty is in some way sort of a insidious form of violence in itself. But, you know, I think with the kids, I've been more impressed by the extent to which kids, kids are so much the same, you know, mm-hmm. that kids are kids are kids and the kids we see in Salt Lake City and the kids we see in Jackson, Mississippi, and then the kids that we're training who are more affluent in Cape Cod and, um, you know, they really fundamentally want to play. And they want the opportunity to engage with with each other. I think it'd be different if we were coming in and introducing sports, but because we're coming in and introducing games where there, by and large, aren't winners and losers, where um, where they're learning, where where it's a very even playing field, where we're not um, introducing games where you, you find with kids that if it's a game they think they should know the rules to, like a football or a basketball or something, and they that there can be a lot of posturing around what they think they're supposed to know and not being as open to it. But we we very much by design uh, introduce an element of silliness and then and, you know in a, in a and we ask our grown ups to make themselves vulnerable through play in a ways in a way that I, I think brings us to um brings us to more of a commonplace. So I tend to find that kids um, that when you come at that level and, and, you, and very much starting at a place of assuming that they don't know how to do the these games and that they don't know how to do this and, um, and not ever putting anyone in a position where they have to feel embarrassed for not knowing something, I, I think that, that those are the essential, that's the essential foundation for, for working with any kid and it's particularly true I think for, for low income kids.
1: So it sounds like a lot of the strategy is about careful preparation of the people that are going to be engaging with the kids so that they can be sensitive to, to these kinds of issues and, and uh, set expectations that will allow nurturing to take place uh, for yeah. the children. We,
2: we are nothing if not obsessed with really adequately training and preparing our staff. So, you know, we do this very simple, straightforward thing around, you know, play, and yet you know, we do two solid weeks of pre-service training with our staff and then ongoing training throughout the school year. And, um, you know, I think it is, it's always been a slightly um, confounding thing to me that we don't train people to work with kids more. Um, And I think it's a problem. And I think the greater emphasis on everything from, you know, prepping folks to be camp counselors to teacher prep to um, really supporting daycare workers and others. But I just, the, the preparation and the respect that people who work with kids deserve. I think there's a there's a gap between what we do and what we should be doing.
1: So a question that I was thinking about is as you've done work now in such a how many you're in you're in how many cities? Twenty three cities and twenty three
2: offices and yeah.
1: Where are those regionally in the country?
2: So we're all over. Um, you know, on the east coast we're in Boston and Newark and New York City and Philly and um, Washington, D.C., and then we're in in Jackson and New Orleans and Houston, Texas and Denver and Detroit and Chicago and Milwaukee and at West, you know, we have four offices here in California and Portland, Oregon, so So we're really all over.
1: You've got a unique kind of... I'm going to
2: be in trouble for having left somebody off. You realize I just feel completely (laughs) that. That's okay, that's okay. We'll forgive you, we'll forgive you. I'm sorry, Phoenix, I apologize.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Uh, But you bring such a unique perspective, seeing so many different communities, and I wonder if you could comment on (laughs) having that perspective. What what do you think are the primary barriers that we as a nation are facing in terms of this kind of change across, maybe something that cuts across, or, or if the barriers are different in these different communities, how do you experience that?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting because I've been having this conversation because, you know, Bill Drayton, the founder of Ashoka, um, sort of, he's been really doing all this thinking and writing about empathy and, and, you know, he and I got into it about how do you really uh, work with schools to really highlight this the, the importance of this and what an extraordinarily important skill this is and how what a difference it'll make. And he's like, yeah, if we could just get to 50 schools. And I'm like, you know what, like, i got to tell you, education is one of these really bizarre and maybe it's not bizarre maybe healthcare is just like it but my experience in dealing with american schools is that um across cities is that we they really see each other they don't they, there's amongst the grown-ups there's a real sense that um, Detroit will tell you, oh, it's not. No, nobody else is like Detroit. Or like, I was in Indianapolis last week, and the fact that we're in 23 cities, they're like, yeah, but Indianapolis is different. Or you know, and then we were we had staff go out to Honolulu, and they're like, yeah, like, this program may work in all of the mainland cities, but like island culture is really different. It's not going to work. Or you know, we heard it when we launched in Jackson. The South is really different, and New Orleans doesn't count. And, you know, like really. <laughs> so and then you know, people in Texas will tell you, how different Texas is, and so. I swear to you, the kids in Chicago and the kids in Houston and the kids in Albuquerque and the kids in LA, so similar and they respond to our games with the same level of enthusiasm and they embrace the program and our coaches really with the same amount of gusto. And I would say that the young adults who come and work with us right out of college generally and become the coaches out in the yard, they have the same transformative experience time after time where They don't. They've never done it before, but they know they want to make a difference, and they love to play, and they care about kids and community. And we train them, and they come from this range of backgrounds, and they are successful, and it changes them forever. But you get, you deal with the grown-ups, you know, the folks in the cities who work for the schools or who work in the mayor's office or who work for the local funder or who work for, you know, and they really are different. There is a power of place that you ignore at your own peril and we've made huge mistakes you know I went into St. Louis thinking that I knew what I was doing and you know it's like the Earl Weaver quote it's what you learn after you know it all that counts and I was wrong you know we opened and closed in St. Louis Hmm. and it was hard Um, and and we make mistakes every day Um, we've just I think after this many you know Years of doing it and growing and the things we've learned, we've just gotten a lot better at failing fast and quick. <laughs> I mean, fast—we fail fast and cheap. So you know, it's—it is—it's a, a process, but you really—you have to meet the grown-ups where they are, and you have to make sure, and you have to genuinely, authentically mean it. But you have to be willing to understand what they're trying to get done, and to couch what you're doing in a way that helps them meet the goals that they've already set for themselves. Mm. And I think we've been able to do that because play does contribute to learning. But when I go into a school, I'm not selling all the things I care so deeply about playing. I'm selling a cost effective solution to their group management, you know, problem at lunchtime and recess.
1: Right. So it's you know making it really practical and fit. Make it really
2: practical and, and relevant, you know? Relevance is Nine tenths of the battle.
1: Interesting. When you, when you, uh, as you think about the future, what what excites you? Where do you see like the real possibilities for growth and really innovative ideas? What what do you feel optimistic and excited about as you look at the road ahead?
2: Well, our training business has taken off. Like I'm sort of shocked and in awe and and wonder and and not because I didn't think it was an amazing thing but um, we were just trying to do something new and usually when you try to do something new, you you fall down a few times and this sort of has taken off right out of the gate. So we're going to be training a thousand schools a year uh, in the next year or two which is really really extraordinary growth and, you know, there's 60,000 public elementary schools out there and the goal is to make it possible for every kid in America to get to play every day. And so the combination of having our sort of gold standard of recess with our direct service model out there and then building on the back of that the training business, I think you then, and if you're getting to 1,000 schools a year and you have these, you know, 27 ultimately offices up and going, you then have a really solid foundation, I think, to see the movement. And for me, Ultimately, the, the real change and the thing that's most exciting is the thought that we are going to create an expectation and then a, a framework that supports families who we never have any direct contact with to become advocates for play and its essential value to, to public education.
1: So you're changing the world. That's that's, that's what it through about. kickball. There you <laughs> <we> go. <laughs> you know. In, Closing out, I just wanted to ask you a, a, a reflective question. We're both social entrepreneurs, and there are many people that are going to be listening to this who are engaged in this kind of change work. And I'd lo- I wonder if you could comment a little bit. You're you're an athlete, you're a runner, and you know you know that this work is a marathon; it's not a sprint. Yeah. And what is it that gives you the passion, or you know what I would call the soul fuel? Where, where do you go? To get uh, that motivation to continue, and um, can you talk a little bit about that and leave us? Yeah. Listen?
2: Well, it's another, um, you know, it's another Bill Drayton idea that you know ultimately what we're working towards, and and his work around Ashoka and, and and focusing on social entrepreneurs is this idea of building a world in which everyone's a change maker. That ultimately that's kind of where we're going, and that's what it's going to take to ultimately be able to muster the collective will to to realize all the solutions that we already know that are out there. Um, So when I'm really, uh, when things are, you know, getting a little harder, you know, just sort of run into my fair share of walls for that week, um, I often will go and visit a school. Um, And you see, for me, I mean, I got into this business because I care so much about kids getting to play, but really watching the young adults that we hire being out there, and they are rock stars and they wear their hearts on their sleeves, and the kids adore them, and they are changing the world right there at that school in this in this just palpable, just extraordinary way. And the way the kids respond to them, and the way the, the teachers appreciate them, and the way the principals are protective of them, and the way they are just so proud. Um, I, you know, there's six, I, I say this over and over again, the 60,000 public schools, Each one of those public schools represents an opportunity for someone to be there having that transformative experience, leveraging play to make sure that kids know that we care about them and know that we want them there and know that there's a way for them to to be a learner. And um, I, I I guess for me, it's seeing that. What the work I've done has created an opportunity for other people to really discover their own superpowers, and that feels like such a gift.
1: Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much. That's just so um, inspirational, and um, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing and uh, for inspiring us today. I thought I would leave with this one little quote from George Bernard Shaw. Maybe you'll trade me back another one since you probably <laughs> are an encyclopedia of Quotes I'm a about big playing. giant fan. Yes, but uh, he said we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. That's, uh, so true. Yes, yes. Well, Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. And if people want more information they, about you, they can go to Ashoka or they can go to your website, which is playworks.org. That's right. Terrific, terrific. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.